These days, work is in trouble. We've outsourced most of our manufacturing to other countries. And with that, we sent away good jobs and our capability to make things. American Giant is a clothing company that's pushing back against this tide. They make all kinds of high-quality clothing and activewear, like sweatshirts, jeans, dresses, jackets, and so much more, right here in the USA. So when you buy American Giant, you create jobs in towns and cities across the country. And jobs bring pride. Purpose. They stitch people together. If all that sounds good to you, visit American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order when you use code STAPLE20 at checkout. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com with promo code STAPLE20. Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. I first met Dave Young in 2015 to 16. He was introduced to me by Master Edward Park. Dave had come in. I was unfamiliar with him. He had come in to do a seminar for our masters and instructors on self-defense, situational awareness, active shooter, and a couple of other topics. My name is Mark Sirianis. I'm your host. I'm a third Don Black Belt, and I'm the editor-in-chief of Taekwondo Life magazine. While I didn't know Dave at that time, I came to find out that he not only is a former Marine, a police trainer, an influencer, a writer, a corporate and government instructor. He is an all-around bright and interesting and accessible individual. Dave's two-day seminar with our instructors was intense. It was high level. It was literally exhausting, but it was transformative and life-changing. Dave has a unique gift for being able to make difficult concepts simple and to be able to provide tools and techniques for individuals at many different levels that they can use to increase their ability to defend themselves, to deal with conflict resolution, non-escalation, and de-escalation. Aside from that, Dave immediately became a supporter and an advocate and a contributor for the Taekwondo Life magazine concept. He offered great feedback, and he has provided terrific content over the course of the last four years. Dave's articles are one of the highlights of our publication, and the feedback that we receive on the value that our readers receive from his his contributions are unparalleled. During this time, I've gotten to know Dave better. He has been accessible. He's been generous. He's been a great contributor, and I was excited when he released his now best-selling book, How to Defend Your Family and Home. That book His publishers were generous enough to allow us to republish one of the chapters in our recent July-August 2020 Dave Young issue. That issue not only features a chapter from that book, but a number of Dave's top-level contributions to our magazine, articles that I think you should read and reread and then read again. Dave spoke to me during the midst of the pandemic about all of these topics, but also about how he has transformed his business and his delivery mechanism during the time of this coronavirus and how he expects that it will change his program and the programs and method of instruction for Taekwondo 
instructors, and dojangs around the country and around the world. As a housekeeping matter, this episode will be simulcast. It'll appear on our podcast platforms everywhere that our podcast platforms are visible. And the video component of this will appear on our YouTube channel at Taekwondo Life Magazine at YouTube. We continue to try to bring our content in a multimedia capacity to make it as accessible to our worldwide audience as is possible. We look forward to your feedback. We look forward to your suggestions. And I hope you enjoy hearing from Dave Young as much as I enjoy talking to him. So we are talking today with uh, somebody who I have great affinity for. And if you're in the Taekwondo world in the United States, uh, I am certain that you are familiar with. Uh, that is Dave Young. And, and Dave, I'd like to welcome you. Um, I became oh, you. with Dave. Um, there was a tremendous buzz uh, about Dave's work with uh, Taekwondo schools and the American Sovereign Association. It highly recommended him. Probably before 2016, I took my first session. Dave's been a huge supporter of Taekwondo Life magazine. He's a regular contributor. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about his, his background. I have from last month's issue of Taekwondo Life magazine, this cover, Dave's article, How to Evaluate a Self-Defense Program. Dave is the author of a terrific book, How to Defend Your Family and Home, which is available in any platform that you can get books, uh, including Amazon. Uh, and and Davis is, is is really a very well respected guy with a, a great uh, pedigree and probably one of the most. And I've been in and around martial arts and self defense. I've taken everything from my regular training to courses and seminars my my entire adult life. And I would say that uh, Dave's training and program was the most beneficial, most practical, and valuable things I've ever experienced. And 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 I really appreciate that. Dave is going to be featured. Our, our digital version of the special Dave Young issue was released on July 4th, uh, which I thought was appropriate. And the print issue will be following shortly hereafter. Uh, you can check out our website for, for more information. So with that long introduction, which is not even long enough to describe all of your credentials and pedigree, I want to welcome Dave Young to the program. Hi, Dave. Oh, hello, Mark. Thanks for having me. Uh, you, you guys put on a w wonderful publication. I, I read some of the the articles from a lot of the other, you know, contributors, and they definitely are passionate about Taekwondo, and your magazine serves a, a great service for the community. Thank you. And I want to say, not not because you're you're with us, but one of the things is that you've, you sort of set the tone from early on in that uh, we focused on the fact, we've always talked about the fact that we would have substantive content, that it wouldn't merely be... Uh, you know, an article that was an advertisement for various dojangs around the country or various masters. We wanted to provide content that was either Taekwondo-based or that Taekwondo practitioners, masters, and instructors would benefit from. And that has been the, um, the, the nature of your, of your content. So, so tell us a little bit about, Dave, tell us about your background. For those that aren't initiated in, the, you know, in Dave Young, tell us about who you are and, and a little bit about your background. And then I'd like to know, you know, explain to folks what your relationship is to Taekwondo. 
Sure. You know, um, I'm married. My wife and I have raised um, five boys and a girl. And as a result of that, we have uh, seven grandchildren. So uh, we're pretty blessed on that front. Uh, And everything they say about being a grandparent is true. Uh, You know, my my background and my career started out differently. Um, I could have definitely went many different avenues in my life. I started out uh, in the street as a kid in a gang. Um, You know, I was shot once and stabbed once before I was 14. Dad left when I was born. You know, the same trouble most single mothers have trying to balance jobs and food and school and clothing and you know we went from apartment building to apartment building as a kid and you know um i got to see a lot of different things about life at a young age and it made me appreciate a lot of the things i have now and that got me first involved in in trying to keep yourself safe you know i took a variety of martial arts you know through my career nothing really formally i haven't really obtained a belt structure you know as you would say um but I've surrounded myself with some outstanding people. I um, started out catching shoplifters in uh, Inglewood, Watson, Compton in the early 80s. I got a scholarship to play water polo out there. And, uh, you know, then in my career, I started out as a corrections officer first, then a police officer. And then I uh, spent 10 years of active duty in the Marine Corps, uh, six years in the reserves. And I've served several deployments, you know, during that time. And uh, Where did you grow up? Did you grow up on the West Coast? I grew up in Brooklyn, New York. I was born in Brooklyn, New York, oh, wow. but I grew up in Hialeah, Florida. Okay. okay. So we went from one extreme of a culture diversity down there to uh, our high school went from, uh, I think, 83% Caucasian when the Marilita boat lifts came in from Cuba to about uh, 13 to 15% Caucasian. So it was definitely, you had to learn how to get along with people in general because, you know, people, people either live in one or two worlds. They either live in the world that it won't happen to me so they do whatever they want. They, they think they're ready for what is not going to happen or they're going to be ready when it does. And uh, everyone, I think, starts out in the first world. Uh, it won't happen to me. You know, I'm kind, I'm courteous, I'm respectful. And sometimes that doesn't translate well to the people that you're dealing with. And, um, you know, everything starts off in a verbal context. It escalates to where you either have to exit or remove yourself or disengage from that contact, avoid it, escape it or you're going to have to engage it. And at a very young age, I learned engagement strategies. Uh, you know, um, they could be fast and furious and very dangerous. And the, the person that you're up against for self-defense doesn't have to be skillful, just sometimes has to get the get to something that you don't see coming. And I think that's where a lot of, uh, a lot of um, self-defense programs are a little amiss, but all the trainers in the country have the same goal, to keep their students safe. And as we um, started developing our programs, you know, we spent a majority of our life teaching military, police, security, corrections, uh, all kinds of law enforcement organizations, state and federal, to include all your branches of the the U.S. Armed Forces. And about uh, seven years ago, um, after talking with Master Chan Lee, uh, he asked me a question I really couldn't give him an answer. You know, why don't you teach civilians? And there really wasn't an answer for that. Sure. Except, uh, you know, uh, you want to screen the people you, you, you train. You want to make sure you're offering them credible information because, you know, as an instructor, when you sign that certificate, you're either signing that person's uh, death certificate and they don't know it, uh, or you're signing their insurance policy and you're increasing their deductible. And I think you have to take great responsibility before you speak. Um, a lot of trainers teach as they were taught which doesn't really connect with a lot of people. So there was a lot of scientific evidence that helped us really design the programs that we have and that make it real. You know, you could teach things that 
only you can do, which leaves a very small group of people that can actually learn it. But you have to teach things that cover the entire context of self-defense. What, what happens before? What do you do during? What do you do after? And then how do you report it to the police? Because there isn't a physical confrontation you're going to get into here in the United States that the person that loses won't report it to the police. Sure. Uh, whether they start the fight or not, you know. So, you know, um, I'm on the road or before COVID hit, I was on the road 40, 45 weeks a year. We travel around the country uh, providing our programs. We teach predominantly instructor courses. And that model had worked really well because now we're able to teach instructor certification courses for martial arts school owners. And they can continue to teach our programs in their local community, which has been great. I have a whole newfound respect for school owners, you know, seeing a lot what they have to do on the back end. Sure. Most students just see a clean, clean dojon, you know, instructors ready to go. But there's a lot of moving parts. And uh, just to to see that gives me a a deeper appreciation for everyone. Well, that's great. That's great. Now, I know from taking your your um, one of your courses that it is very hands on approach. It was very intense. It was really uh, interactive. How has that approach changed in terms of the, uh, in light of the fact that there's been this changing dynamic since March of, of people having to go from in-person to, to online? Has it, has it impacted what you're doing? Have you just taken some time off? I know better. Uh, or how, ha- how have you shifted your, your model to be able to effectively deliver what it is that you do without being, you know, face-to-face with somebody? Well, you know, I want to start off with a quote. and The quote's from my mentor and one of my closest friends. Uh, Gary Klugowitz says, you have to do fire drills instead of fire talks. So whether you're in the classroom, students don't want to hear you talking. Whether you're on a remote training, they don't want to see you talking. And that you're only going to really remember what you do when your life depends on it the most. So you have to kind of change the format. So we use a pretty simple delivery system Um, First, we show the student what we're doing so they can take that brain picture. This is what it's supposed to look like. Because let's face it, everyone, myself included, when we go to a class, we bring our own experiences with us. And sometimes that experience, if it's not put in your back pocket, can really hinder learning. So we want to make sure we take that brain picture. Now, if you're on the opposite end of the spectrum and you've never been in a fight before, you're, you're not too, you know, your physical agility isn't of those people who play sports on a regular basis then you still have to have that brain picture. So we show it to them, whether you're on a screen, you're watching a video, or we do it live for them, but we show it. They have to have that brain picture. And after you show it to them, that only gets um, a few of the learners. You know, your visual learners see exactly what they're doing, but the auditorial learners and the ketesthetic learners at least have the brain picture and their learning hasn't really started yet because they learn differently. So we show it first. And then what we do is then we break it down like a coaching call, whether we're doing it in person for the technique or remotely, or we're doing a video, we have to explain what the student just saw. And that's going to get the other third of your group that has to learn by auditorily. So we show it to them first, then we break it down and we explain it. Now we're going to have to demonstrate it in the context that it's going to be applied because I mean, you've been in martial arts for a whole lot longer than I have, and you can choreograph anything to be successful. But if a technique can't be done in real time, it can't, if it can't be done, if I'm going to teach you a technique, it must be able to be done while you're standing on the ground, sitting in a chair. We don't get to pick our environments where our attacks occur. So you don't get to pick exactly how this is going to take place. So why teach 
a technique for each individual thing, which is 10 techniques, or you could teach one thing that would be applicable in 10 environments. So we, it's just a, a model that we follow, show it, explain it, then demonstrate it in context. And then you have to go through some um, guided discovery. So the student's in an awkward stage. So whether we do it on purpose or we do it remotely, um, people's mindsets are different at home than they are when they drive to your school. Um, we find this, whether you're in a military setting, a government setting, a state setting, or a local setting, that you're more comfortable in your home, there's more distractions. So you have to set the tone very early on. And you do that by showing them what they're gonna learn, explaining it, demonstrating it, and then you have to go through some shadow drills. We call that shadow training, while you're sitting in the chair. We wanna make sure that when the student stands up and moves the chair, they're doing things from a more cognitive level. Um, if you know, how many times have, have instructors or trainers uh, told the student, do you see what I'm saying? But they never showed them what they wanted them to see. Right. And I, I found this out in my early ages, you know, many years ago that they were doing what I was doing. But what I was saying was opposite of what I was doing. So this allows you to put your training in a different context. Show, explain and demonstrate. Then do some shadow drills. And then you have to practice because nothing beats practice. And it's not um, uh, uh, repetition is the teacher. It's supervised practice. So when you're doing it remotely, you know, I'm sure you've heard the, 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 res the ratios before. When you're in a classroom, it's uh, uh, one in 10 students. But when you're doing it remotely, I have an, an assistant instructor watching the monitor for every four to six students. And we're given constant feedback because without feedback, they just repeat what they're doing wrong. And this, this brings me to a very age-old question. You know, and I, if anyone has the answer, I'd like you to type it out to us. Let us know your answer that you found is, how do you train a student to go up against an unknown attacker at an unknown location, at an unknown date and time, with an unknown skill level, and you don't know when, it, how do you prepare a student to do that? Well, as our training has evolved, we feel we found an answer that we can live with, because let's face it, anything you train, they have to be able to do, they have to be able to see it in their mind, they have to be able to feel it in their heart, and they have to be able to perform it with their bodies. And I think when you do that and make the training relevant, your students connect much quicker that way. Sure, sure, I think that's great. I think that's great, and I think, you know, one of the things, uh, Dave, I, I love the way that you, your, your approach is, uh, I feel very much like your approach is rubber meets the road, right? It's, it's, it's not all theoretical. It's, it's, there's a lot of practical in there. Um, and I really respect that. You know, one of the things that you probably don't, it's probably uh, something that you say in, in passing, but probably you don't realize, you know, one of the things that was really interesting and life-changing for me, I consider myself to be a good parent is uh, when you and I had, when I had uh, taken one of the courses with you, I have four, four boys and two of them happened to be very young. So they were even younger when we took the class. And uh, you dramatically changed the way I, I interact with them at the park. Because one of the things you had said in, you know, in talking <laughs> about situational awareness is about that right. parent who comes and sits in that one spot and um, stays there the entire, entire time watching your kids. But then you set yourself up for some, you know, evildoer to be able to set themselves up in a way where they're uh, reacting in relationship to where you're sitting. And from the day that, I, that we took that course, there was never a time that I ever went to the park with my kids that I didn't move my position probably every 10, 10 minutes that I was with them, always in, in hearing in my mind that the conversations that we, we had about those types of things. So 
really a lot of really good practical stuff. And I know a lot of that stuff is in, is in your book and a lot of that stuff's in the articles and a lot of that stuff's in, in the way that you teach. You know, you've, everyone's heard this phrase before. I'm sure that experience is what you get five minutes after you have it. And uh, the class you're talking about is our anti-child abduction program. And uh, in order to catch a hunter, you have to know how they hunt. So just by changing the mindset, when you go out to the store, uh, the bookstore, the grocery store, wherever you're at, playground, that you're entering someone's hunting ground. And that should immediately change your mindset. You know, we tell people, and a lot of people have forgotten, that as soon as you get to the park, take pictures of everybody in the area and just put them in your phone. And then as you sit and you watch your kids play, your kids should interact with you non-verbally, give you thumbs up, a smile, hello, and they should let you know when they're going to the next thing. You know, people who are there to hunt your children are there to watch you get distracted. They're not in a time zone. They're right. going to wait. They're going to watch what the parent is paying more attention to their cell phone or their book or the food they brought than the most prized possession of their kids playing in the playground. And they wait for us as parents to slip up. So there's many things that you can do. And I think, um, you know, the Internet has been a great resource for people, but it's also been a detriment as well. You know, um, not everything you see on YouTube or Facebook is true. You know, um, people get to express, you know, people get to express their opinion like I'm expressing mine. Uh, my experience is based off my own truths, my own experiences, my own values, ethics and morals. And, you know, that might be different than somebody else's. So when we put our training program together, I just want every instructor out there to remember that when you sign their certificate, are you really increasing their insurance deductible? Or are you signing their death certificate? We have a great responsibility that I'm seeing school owners really change that hat a little bit, you know, working um, with uh, Master Ed Park, Master Chan Lee, Master Jay Lee in Colorado, Master Jim Nam, I mean, I can name, and Master Angie Lee and Jason Lee in Seattle. I can name literally hundreds of school owners that are really making that change going into the new year because you have to touch your students remotely now. Now, the good thing is you could touch more people remotely than you can have people come into your school. So every, every week you should be doing a safety podcast, whether you get with people like myself, whether you talk with other school owners, but until a person gets a piece of information, which I call the learning seed, once they get the learning seed, then you have to plant it then you have to water it, you have to nurture it, you have to watch it grow because that's the unique bond between a student and an instructor. And if the instructor understands their responsibility, I can assure you the students know theirs. How many school owners have you seen where the student comes back after high school or college or a job and he remembered the impact that you have in their lives? And we're in the business of shaping young minds. And that means emotionally, mentally, and physically. And you have a better way of doing that now through remote training, as well as coming into the school. So you asked me a question earlier. I kind of kind of gave an answer, but didn't. Our workload is almost tripled. Wow. Um, I don't have to travel 40, 45 weeks a year, but I can do up to 25 courses in a month, 30 courses in a month, just for me. And if I have uh, 35, 40 trainers out there times that, you can almost do almost 100 courses every quarter. You know, so you have the capabilities for learning how to present your material differently. You'll never present the same amount of material in the same amount of time remotely sure. as you do in person. And you just have to make that change. I think the school owners can do it. They can be very successful at it. And um, there's a lot of resources out there for them to use, like, you know, Taekwondo Life Magazine is a great resource to do as well. Great. 
Let me, let's go. I have a couple of questions where there's so much I want to talk to you about. We talk a lot, but this is a sort of a little bit of a different ability to pick your brain. Um, one is, what is your, you've been working with the Taekwondo community uh, fairly extensively for a, a number of years now. What do you see as the differences between working with the Taekwondo community as opposed to working with uh, law enforcement, uh, government officials, things of that nature in terms of um, what they bring to the table and the type of program that, that you do um, in, ter in terms of your training? Well, I think the, you know, the, the role of a student has really never changed, whether you're the mechanic that goes to work 40 hours a week and then comes to a school two hours a day, you know, for the six week period. Um, I start to see that a lot of people that come to our classes in the martial art communities are coming from a very heartfelt place that they understand the world is not as safe as it used to be. And they're more likely to run into danger. They like to have some arrows in their quiver or tools in their toolbox to address it, especially when they're with their families, right? When you train law enforcement, military and security, their mindset is just like that but they bring a lot of life experiences from mistakes they've had, situations they've responded to, things that worked out well, things that worked out didn't well. And they, they quickly wanna compare what you're showing them to what has happened to them in the past. So the intensity level is different, but it still come from the same heartfelt place. Um, I've seen a big difference between working with Taekwondo communities versus working with karate communities or Muay Thai or Krav, even though they're, they're great martial art styles, Taekwondo has always been more of a family base, or at least that's my personal experience that I have had, that when you go to a Taekwondo school, um, there's more family. Uh, the kids start out young, the kids usually are the testing grounds, and then the parents get involved, and then yeah, that's true. you know it, you know, then you have the whole family doing it. It's something that you can do together as a family where you're building everybody up, and there's nobody really, you know, tearing anybody down. Um, not that they tear anybody down in the other, other disciplines. But when I teach a, a school on anti-child abduction, that parent's coming because of something they saw in the news, something their child has reported to them, something they want to prevent. And they're coming with a need for wanting to know that information. When I teach a firearms class, anyone who comes to firearms classes are either been in gunfights could have been in gunfights, had people shoot at them. They might have had to shoot at others. So the training has to be relevant, and you have to make it impactful. So if, if the student can't relive that life experience and training, then that training really didn't do what it was designed to do. Because isn't the definition of training is to prepare you for what you know is about to occur and also give you some tools in your toolbox for things that may not happen? So I think the mindsets are the same because they want to learn but they each bring a different relevant value of information of experiences to those classes, which change the questions, the intensity, the tone, the tempo of, of the material. And then the material takes a different life for them. That's great. That's very helpful. I want to ask you, you know, one of the things that's come to mind as I was thinking about us talking is, you know, without getting too far into what's going on in the world, because there's a lot going on in the world, but the term de-escalation has particularly as it relates to law enforcement and law enforcement situations and violent situations, de-escalation has been a term that has been, uh, I've probably heard it more in the last 30 days than I've heard it my entire life, but it's something right. that we talk a lot about. And it's something we talk about in Taekwondo schools in the sense that 
I think sometimes from the outside, people have the wrong understanding and maybe people get into martial arts and training and fighting and things for the purposes of learning to defend yourself and learning to fight. But to some degree, you, you the one thing you come to understand when your brain develops is that you, you never know what you're going to come up against. And probably the greatest right. tool, right, is de-escalation. So I wanted to get a sense from, from your perspective in terms of uh, just about that topic and about how you see that as it relates to the people that, that you, you're training in terms of Taekwondo schools and things of that nature. Is that something that you found uh, in and outside of that, that people are receptive to understanding? Is that still, since the last time we met, something that you consider to be a um, significant aspect of what it is that you talk about? Well, yes, um, de-escalation is not new, uh, but the framework that people need to understand is before de-escalation is a strategy called non-escalation. All the things you can do to avoid the negative dance, um, uh, get away from the negative dance, escape from the negative dance, all the things you can do in the front end when the person's tone of voice increases, when their eyes change, when the, the five basic indicators start to develop, you lose the ability of managing distance, positioning, hand placement, all those things. There's a whole bunch of things before de-escalation that need to be in the fabric of what everybody teaches. You know, the old the old um, myth or the old uh, Mr. Miyagi from the Mr. Miyagi days, sure. what's the best way to block a punch? Well, it's to not be there. So, you know, your training has to have some non-escalation strategies. And then it has to have de-escalation strategies on what you're managing. Can you manage your tone of voice, your facial expressions? We, we refer to a, a, a tactic called communication alignment. That means when you're talking to someone, is your um, facial expressions, your nonverbals, your posture, your hands, are your nonverbals, are they sending the message that your words are trying to say? You've often heard people say, well, it's not what you say, it's how you say it. Well, people learn based on what they see. They're more, during times of crisis and stress, people are more educated during uh, visually than auditorily stimulated. So right. if, if your viewers out there are watching this with me, I'd like you to do this activity. Give me thumbs up. And what I want you to do is I want you to take your thumb and put it right here on your chin. Put it on your chin. There you go. No, I said put it on your chin, and people did what they saw, right? That's great. So when you, you know, when you look at that, that's right. What are you showing the person when you're speaking? Are you showing that you're a threat? You're intimidating. You're mad. You're angry. You're frustrated. Are you giving them things that they can use against you before the first word is spoken? So non-escalation is real, real important. And communication alignment is managing your nonverbals is just as important as your tone of voice. Because then when you speak, the second part of communication alignment is the tone you use. We always say that the tone you use is the music your words dance to. You know, um, I remember when I was young and my mother would stand out on the, on the steps and she'd yell my name, but I wouldn't hear her. I would just see her standing on the porch with the wooden spoon, and I knew nothing good was going to happen when I got to the house, right? <laughs> the, non, the non-verbal cues, right? So tone of voice, if she didn't have that, you, 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 is it urgent? Is it an emergency for you or for them? Uh, are you angry? Are you um, not even concerned for them? So tone of voice is going to actually help you demonstrate concern when you're talking to a person. And then the last part is the words. Precision word choice is something we have to be accountable for. You know, if I say, hey, man, don't effing talk to me like that. You know, communication alignment's off. My word choice could have been better. You know, I could have said something like, 
I can see you're upset, but there's got to be another way you can explain that to me. You know, I have my kids here. I really don't appreciate you, you know, using that language. I want to make sure I'm looking professional, right? I'm demonstrating concern and I'm keeping everybody safe in the process. So non-escalation is a step. It's not the whole ladder. You have non-escalation, de-escalation, and then the person's either going to take you in conflict and you're going to bring them down. They're going to escalate to a crisis. You're going to have to bring them down or there's going to be a safety violation. You're going to be in combat. They're going to grab you, kick you, spit at you, punch you, attack you. So we, we identify with what we call the six C's of conflict management. And over here to this column, we have context, contact, and closure. You know, you, you brought up a, a really interesting concept I want to elaborate just a little bit on. Most of our context stays in the blue. We understand the context, we make the contact, and we have closure. So can we say that most of the contact we make on a regular basis stays in the blue most of the time? That's our goal. But every now and then when we're in conflict, we have the column here, but we also have a column going this way. We have conflict. How many people do we come in contact with every day that it's our tone of voice that escalated the contact? We brought conflict. You know, um, I, there's always someone we work with that as soon as they come, they bring their partner of conflict with them. You know, we always hope they, they don't ever show up, right? So it's what they say, how they say it, what they do, how they do it. But then if you can non-escalate conflict, then you've resolved it. You bring it back to closure. But if you can't resolve conflict, it escalates the crisis. That affects a person's ability to process, to hear things, to see things, to understand things, their emotion. Um, we always tell people, never let your personal face enter a professional setting because your personal face will never represent you well. Right. And that's when people um, react to things rather than respond to it, which should be a trained sequence. So we have the column on the left, context, contact, and closure. But then it escalates the conflict, escalates the crisis, and then we have combat. Well, before that punch was thrown, there were words that were spoken. Or maybe there was a translation of those words that was not meant the way it was, it was, it was meaning to be. How many times have you found during conversations with your kids that your tone never gave the best representation of yourself? Sure. And when you're in crisis, adults respond to tone. Hey, don't talk to me like that. You can't say that to me that way. I dare you talk to me like that. And kids, they respond to tone of voice. Um, the old joke in my house was, uh, when my kids had friends over and they were all playing and I'd say, Hey, Michael, go get your brother, David. And Michael's friends would say, gosh, your dad's pretty cool. And they go, no, my dad's mad. <laughs> it just, the softer you speak, right. get your point across a whole lot more. So when I have somebody yelling at me, we use a tactic called reverse yelling. When they're screaming, I can't believe this. It's taken 45 minutes for you to get here. You know, so I really see you're upset. I'd be upset too. And we just don't feed the fire. Sure. So that's part of a non-escalation and a de-escalation tactic. So if they're teaching self-defense at their school and they're only teaching when to block the punch and sweep the leg and put the person in an arm bar, they're teaching them how to get into trouble and then teaching them how to get out of it when they should be teaching them non-escalation first, then de-escalation, and then what to do if you have to engage. And it should be part of a complete program, which is why I wrote that article. I get people asking me, 50 times a week, you know, should I go learn from this guy? I always start out with this. Yes, you should learn from everybody, but you have to keep what they're teaching you in context. If they're teaching you how to take a finger and put it through a coconut, 
that might be great for pina colada parties, but it's not going to be <laughs> too well for, you know, physical self-defense. Sure. And physical self-defense starts with the words we use, not the hands we apply. And I think you have to have a good balance of your verbalization skills coupled with physical alternatives. And there are some schools making a change. We're working with several of them. But if you're just teaching how to block and punch and kick, you're really not teaching them self-defense. That's great. Now, for me, one of the things I'm, I'm very big on is uh, reading facial expressions. And when I'm with my kids a lot, one of the things they've come, they always used to ask me, do you know that person? Because I always say hello and good morning. And one of the things that I always observe is that, you know, you could read people's expressions and people seem to be very, you say hello, and all of a sudden people's uh, stern face becomes a smile, right? But now, and, and I feel like you can sort of read people's tone from their face, but now you walk around, right? And, and the necessity is we walk around like this, which makes it much harder to read people's facial expressions in a public scenario. So from your perspective, what is the compensating factor in doing that? What, do we, what should we look more for in terms of being able to sense from a person, right? I mean, prior to this pandemic, you saw someone walk into the bank with a mask and you knew you probably were in danger. Now you see somebody walk in without a mask and it's unusual. So what do we look for? Is it the body language? Is it the vibrational stuff? Is it the, the verbals? What do, you, what do you look for? Because you can't look. To me, I've always looked to the face first. I've always felt the faces tells you a lot about somebody. You do see the eyes, but is, is that what you should look for? Yeah, there's like a hundred points of nonverbals, and um, the facial expressions cover around eight or ten of them. Okay, but you want to watch how fast a person is walking. What's their their walking pace? Are they walking directly with a purpose? I mean, if someone's just walking directly at you, you know they're mad before they even get there, right? Right. Um, so it, it's the speed and the pace in which they're walking. And number two, it's the distance they stand from you. The person, you know, uh, Joe Lashley, when which is one of our trainers, he's an expert in this. Uh, he says, oh, I'm going to probably get this wrong, but he says, most people talk too loud, stand too close, talk too fast. And if you're experiencing those things in the very beginning, that should tell you that this person has a sense of urgency, which means you need to put your hands up, create a little bit of distance, because they can't punch you if they can't touch you. Right. right? So I watch someone's speed of um, walk. Are they doing a direct line or an indirect line? I watch their head. Is it up and looking or is it down and slouching? Um, are their hands fidgety? Are they playing with their ring, adjusting their watch? Are their hands keep going in and out of their pockets? Do their hands keep adjusting a certain spot on their belt? People always give away that they're carrying a firearm in the first 60 seconds of watching them because they're subconsciously touch it, adjust their belt. So I watch how fast they walk. I watch... Um, um, where they're walking, their head positioning, their body slouching, uh, their hand movements, all those nonverbals, how close they stand. If they stand too far away from me, that tells me that they're scared. And then when I look at their face, I look at the eyes. Eyes are very expressive. When someone is yelling at you, you are not smiling with your eyes. You're not. <laughs> right, right, right. No, it's more right. like this. So you have to be expressive with your eyes, more so. When I'm looking at someone, talking with someone, I have to be more animated. I almost have to, um, you know, a professional performs their words. So their hands are here. They're really, so if you can't see the faces, wow, I can't believe that. They're really good. And when you're wearing a mask, they have a tendency to talk louder. So their tone of voice is often misread. Um, 
school owners should practice the commands they give when they're in the mask, how they're talking to parents. Um, also, turning your head a little bit to the right or left when you're talking to them so it's not being mumbled right to them, but they get to hear the words project. They get a better clarity of what you're saying. Talk in shorter sentences. Um, you know, when we do our, our podcasts and our Zoom calls with my teammates, we always say you have a three-minute soundbite. At the end of the three minutes, shut up so people can digest, ask questions. Right. Well. We say, talk to the person for a minute, and before you get done speaking, ask a question, then be quiet long enough to listen. Learn how to communicate when people are in crisis. And if they're wearing a mask, they're scared. They have to be. There's a certain level of anxiety through uneducation. And then they become fearful because they don't know. And then people can panic at the very slightest you know, bit of something out of the norm. So your nonverbal cues, a, a person speaks volumes really before the first word is spoken. So, you know, the facial expression is one, but head positioning, body slouching, your nonverbals, it encompasses all that. That's great. That's great. In the interest of time, I'm going to ask you a couple of more questions. One is I, I, I wanted to ask you, you, you spent your life in law enforcement and in the Marines, and you're around, while you're still involved in that, you're involved uh, with Taekwondo. A lot of what you're doing with Taekwondo is through p- traditional Taekwondo schools, right? They're more progressive now, but they're still traditional. What do you see as the similarity between the structure of the Marines and the military and the structure that you see in Taekwondo schools today in the United States? Is there, is there uh, a similarity or, or not really? Well, there's a similarity among any culture. There's always a, a higher tier the middle tier, then the lower tier. So um, I'll just give you this example, and then everyone can draw their own conclusions. Um, I've seen some seniors in martial arts feel that their juniors owe them. In the military setting, when I walk into a barracks and I walk in with my ribbons and badges and jump wings, a person I'll ask a person if I can get them a cup of coffee. But I, I don't see that. You know, I see some school owners find the line where there's respect, and respect is always shown first, right? So I think there's a chain of command structure that is very similar. Um, there's a, a master at a school, which is given the utmost respect as he should. It's displayed by his juniors or her juniors. And then the students, you know, mimic that. And if you have a problem with respecting your school, it doesn't start with the students. It starts with the instructors that are modeling the respect that they want their students to have. And I see that that is a very good similarity because, you know, we, we have this old saying, there was a bunch of articles written on a bunch of different topics, like, why is the barracks dirty? You have one set of barracks, which is dirty all the time. You have another barracks, which is immaculately clean. Take the supervisors out of one barracks and put them in the other, and the supervisors in one barracks and put them in the other one. Within three weeks, they're reversed. Right. So if your dojon is dirty, who wants the dojon to be dirty? And it's right. usually the instructors. Uh, students mirror. They replicate. They imitate. And sometimes flattery, you know, imitation or uh, copying is the highest form of flattery, but can also be the detriment as well. So I think um, the chain of command, the structure, the respect, the discipline, I think, wow, the martial arts schools are – I see it, it, it makes my heart feel good when they have the kids say the Pledge of Allegiance. They have them bow and show everybody with respect because respect isn't color-coded. You know, a person gets respect whether they're 
they're treating me with respect or not. That's the hard part, right? How many right. times have you had people say, well, Mark, I can't treat him with respect. He's not giving me any. Well, it's exactly. not like a coin. You know, it's a, it's, we treat people like ladies and gentlemen, not because they are, but because we are. That's one of our infographics in our training. You know, and it's hard to treat people right when they're doing, working so hard to treat you so poorly. And I think that's what the martial arts has done a great job in disciplining, like the military does in general, is um, we treat people the same across the board. Um, when you put on that, that uniform, there is no color, right? There is no uh, ethnic barrier. There is no financial. You look just like everybody else, right? That is a that's a wonderful point, and I, that is one of the things that I've always loved about being in the in the martial arts is that you don't know uh, when you put on the uniform, you you know in, in an ideal environment how hard someone is willing to work and how good a partner they are. I don't know at first. Are you a doctor? Are you a lawyer? Are you a construction worker? Are you Christian? Are you a Muslim? Uh, are you, uh, you know, are you single? Are you married? You don't know any of those things, and those things don't become the basis for which you form any type of uh, judgment. You simply know this is a person who's a good partner to work with, and a per person who you can tell gives 150 yeah. percent. We're all the same, and that becomes the basis for a really. It's always been a safe space. I've always found that being in the dojang is the safe is a safe space because of that level of mentality and, and that level of respect. So that, that makes sense. And Mark, I just got to add this one thing. I've seen the school owners that I've worked with have the biggest hearts. Sure. They open up their home, their school, their family. Um, they are a true asset to any community. And I've always said that the martial arts schools should work on being a safety resource for their community. Because if they just look at a martial arts school as someone who's teaching kicking and punching, they've missed the whole message of life. Absolutely. And I, I think um, they should do more to get out in the communities because they're needed in the communities. At this time, especially, I agree. I couldn't agree with you more. And I think I've seen an amazing, I did a program on this a couple of weeks ago, and I've seen just an amazing uh, trans, when I say transformation, it, a transformation in the way that they're delivering, but that they've all gotten so involved in, in trying to disseminate good information to try to be good resources mm -hmm. for the community. And, and, and it's really, really reinforced what I sort of knew and, and already knew, but it, it, you know, challenging times tell you a lot about who you are and who you're surrounding yourself with. So no, I, I, I had a, a parent contact me a while back. We teach active shooter programs to the schools and there was an active shooter in their school. And wow. she was so proud of her 13 year old daughter that, organized and choreographed everything because the teacher was a little scared, not knowing what to do. The students were panicking. She got everybody lined up, ready to go. And, uh, you know, to inspire our young to stand up and be leaders, it, 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 it makes my heart grow even more when I walk into a school and I see a junior belt helping a, a senior belt with a pumse or a kick. Absolutely. You know, Absolutely. Watch that camaraderie. You, you cannot get that. In. And that's the way our, our community should be is so equal. And that's what the martial arts school, especially the Taekwondo schools I've worked with have shown me. That's great. In the interest of time, I'm going to ask you a couple, one or two more things, but what, what, what do you envision uh, the world for you as we sort of come out of this crisis, right? So there are certain things that have occurred. As you said, there's been transformations in the way you deliver your programs that are not simply going to fold up. Fold up. There are certain things that are going to fold right. up, but there are certain things that aren't. What do you, uh, and again, we don't know when, when ultimately that, you know, life will be whatever normal is. 
Um, they keep using the term new normal. What do you envision for your uh, relationship and your teaching and your, uh, your programs in the post-COVID uh, era? Will it be some mix of what you did before and what you're doing now? Will it, will it stay largely this way? What do you, what do you, what's your thought on it? Well, you know, the definition of normal is what you allow yourself to get used to, right? Right. So um, we're having to adapt a lot. We've always had blended learning, go to an online course, and then we'll come in for shorter days. Uh, now we have remote training led by instructors, so we can have pretty much everything up to the practice and in the real-life simulations. So what I think is going to happen uh, moving forward, we're already seeing this, is that we have a licensed content program where people can buy our content, we train their staff, we give them the material so they can teach it the way they want to teach it. Um, I see me doing more uh, traveling once the travel restrictions are lifted, but I'm not, not, I'm not traveling because the travel restrictions are bad. We just want to reduce the amount of instructors that are going to catch the virus because it's not sure. a question if you're going to catch it. Everyone's right. going to get it at some point. Sure. Uh, sure. Whether you, you, you're going to church, you're working out at your own gym, you're going to the grocery store. So I think the the normal platform we're going to use is we're going to touch more school owners, more organizations because we're in healthcare, um, education, we're in all kinds of school platforms, security, casinos, healthcare, uh, utilities, customer service base. We're going to do a lot of instructor led training and that's going to be done remotely. And then at a certain point, Instead of five days, you'll get together for two days or a day based on what you're learning. I don't think you'll ever truly remove the face-to-face -face training that's needed for competency, but the student has to take a greater burden of responsibility now than they did before because you have to practice. Right. And practice right. without training is a fool's bet. So if you're taking a class online and you're taking a cooking class and you miss the ingredients, you throw it out and do it again. But if, if your teachers are giving you something to learn, we say that you should be practicing. So for every, the ratio is for every four hour block we give you online, that demands two hours of practice. And you're gonna have to practice and do it right with supervision. So remote is gonna be done more with instructor-led classes. Uh, I see me meeting with more school owners in this platform, going over our training, Giving a, taking an on-demand online course, taking the instructor-led class, and then at some point getting together to validate your skill set. Because that's really what the in-person training does, is at some point you have to perform your skill set. Right. And uh, so this gives us a bigger venue. There's going to be more instructor-led classes, more webinars, more podcasts, more workshops done remotely. And then we'll get back together with the schedule, finances, and all those things come to play because let's face it, this has taken a toll on everybody financially. Sure. And sure. Uh, training professionally is the first thing that's cut from big organizations, but it's the number one reason they're having the lawsuit in the first place. So I think they're going to have to find the balance of how do I get my staff trained? And then what demands of practice do I put on them? Because at some point you have to be able to perform what you're learning. So, you know, I don't know if that answered your no it, 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 no, it did. It, it's great. And, and, and you hit on a good point that I think is, is it's a chicken and egg, but I think you're right in any type of a business, no matter what it is, that financial needs always reduce the amount of training. But if one were to analyze the economic impact of loss, of accident, of in, in, in anything, of uh, mistakes, 
that occur as a result of diminished training, it probably more than compensates for what the cost of any type of training would be in almost anything that you do. So, so I get a call from, you know, Mark, I get a call from a big organization. We have a lawsuit because this employee said this. My first question is, well, what were they told to say in lieu of that? Right. Right. So you can't be shocked on what comes out of their mouth. Right. Right. If you don't teach them. Right. Because that vacuum is filled by something. It's filled by, by whatever, you know, bad things they might have come in with. So, uh, Dave, uh, for, for us, our, you obviously, people can look for all of your articles uh, in, in our magazine. They can look for They can go to our website, taekwondolifemagazine.com, to order the, uh, the print and digital uh, issue, the Dave Young issue, which I'm really proud of. It's, it's a combination. It's, it's, uh, your publisher was, was kind enough to allow us to, to republish one of the chapters of your great book. Oh, wow. Uh, and so, so that's included in there. They have given us permission to do that, plus some of, of your articles. Uh, they can find your, your great book on Amazon. Tell us where else people that are interested in learning more from you and about you, what is the best way for them to get in touch with you, whether they be uh, federal, state, Taekwondo school, Muay school? Sure. Um, you can get a hold of me on my email address. is D for David. Young, Y-O-U-N-G, D Young, at Vistelar, V-I-S-T-E-L-A-R com, Or you can go to the usfightingsystems.com website and click on how to contact Dave there. Terrific. Um, we'll put those links in the, uh, in, in the show notes. You know, when, when we wrote the book, we wrote 10 chapters and in every chapter, there's an activity to do with your family. We wanted the book to be interactive and that really inspired the way we wrote the articles. We got some really good articles planned for this year coming up and next year and how we tie the COVID-19 remote training. That's great. And, you know, Mark, I, every martial artist that I talk to in the country, whether it's on Facebook or in person or on the phone, they always mention what a, a good resource your magazine has been. So, you know, thank you. For it is. It has been it has been the mission of Grandmaster Park. It's been been my mission. So it, it really has been terrific. Let me ask you what the final question I'm going to ask. You, I'm just curious. Who is the ideal student for you and your, and your organization? The one who understands that what they're going to learn is going to determine the life factor. So when your life depends on it the most, those are the students I want because they keep the training relevant. There's a difference between being paranoid and being cautious. Cautious people are aware. Panicked people have no clue. And um, if you live in the world that it can happen to you, I believe there's some really good things we can share with you, but you have to be the deciding factor. Um, I'm always willing to to do, you know, talks with school owners on the phone. They can get a hold of me through ASA, the American Submarine sure. Association. Master Chan Lee is always a great connection. Master he was Jay a great Lee. guest. Yeah, he was a great guest on this program. His I, episode is probably one of the top five uh, most listened to of all of our shows. And I, I have no, I, no doubt that's true. They are amazing individuals. And uh, the best student is the one that comes with an empty cup. It's probably the best answer. That's great. That's great. Well, Dave, I, I, I thank you for talking to us. I will say honestly and personally that your uh, interaction with you has changed my life for the better. Um, there are certain watermarks, but when you, especially when you get older, certain watermarks in, in, your, in your life, certainly being with the parks for as long as I have. But uh, having the relationship with you, your contributions, the knowledge that, I, that I've gained, 
um, I, I feel bad. I feel like it's very, uh, uh, you know, I, I'm, I kind of suck you dry when I, when I have the opportunity to speak to you, but I really learned so much. So I thank you so much for talking to us and I look forward to it. And uh, um, I, I wish you and your family safety and health in, in, in the upcoming remainder of the year and forward. And thank you so much. And we'll, when we publish this, we'll put in the show notes all the ways to get in touch with you, all the ways to order the, the, the various products. And, and um, I look forward to seeing you around and talking to you very soon. Uh, same here. And let's just keep everybody safe out there together because we definitely need it. Very good. Thanks, Dave. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.